How's everyone? Good. That's awesome. My name's Chase. If you're just visiting, I am the Garner Campus Pastor that's launching in September. Um, and I'm, we're going to finish out this series uh, this weekend. And I've loved this series so far, the series that we've been calling Help Us. And it's a series based on the one another's of the Bible. Um, and I've loved hearing stories about just life change happening and relationships being restored. And so this week, the last week in our series, we're going to be talking about one another that hits really close to home for me, which you'll find out why later in the sermon. But it's the one another of restoring, restore one another. And so we just watched a video about a wife who came alongside um, of her husband and helped restore him to his heavenly father, to a relationship with God. And so that's what we're talking about this weekend, the act of restoration, restoring one another. And so whether you know it or not, restoring is actually the responsibility of everyone who would consider themselves a Christ follower here today. But it's a responsibility that many of us would rather not have in my experience. A biblical restoration is something that's usually hard or uncomfortable to do, something we're reluctant to do, and something that can be very confusing and challenging to walk out. So um, this, this biblical restoration is found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be up on the side screens. But as you're turning there, let me just kind of set up this passage. Um, the, the Greek word that the Bible use, uses for church is the word ekklesia. Everyone say ekklesia. Good. And that word literally means called out ones. And so the church, according to the Bible, is a group of people that have been called out of their old way of life into their new way of life. We're a group of people that are striving or struggling to leave behind sin and we're working to live according to God's word, the Bible. So that's, that's what the church is at its foundation. There's a direction to it. And so in many passages in the Bible, the authors basically say, hey, church, we're in this journey away from our old lives of sin together. And everyone at some point is going to struggle to keep up. Everyone's going to be tempted to go back to their old life. They're going to be tricked by the enemy to give up the pursuit of holiness. And they're going to want to go back towards the ways that they used to live. And so we need each other in these moments. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to get us back on the right path. We actually have a responsibility to each other to restore one another during these moments. And so that's what this word restore actually means. It's going to someone who's going astray and helping them get back on the right track. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and acknowledge that if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christ follower here this weekend, that sounds loony, like that sounds crazy. Um, that, that's a very uncomfortable message there. If I heard this before I started a relationship with God or joined a church, that would make me a little uncomfortable as well because this is not what our culture does, is it? And the idea of someone going to someone else and saying, can I help you change your actions? Can I help you change the way that you're currently living? That's a little bit offensive. That, that goes against the coexist bumper stickers that we see. You know, we, we were kind of let live and let live culture. So this weekend, let me just preface this by saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Christians are supposed to walk around and judge other people. That's not it. In fact, I'm going to show you that the Bible says not to do that. That we, as Christ followers, are never in a place to look down on or judge others. We're, we're in no way better or more holy than other people. In fact, agreeing to that statement that we're no better than anyone else, that's kind of the first step to becoming a Christ follower. 
So I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying that we're supposed to force our views on other people. I'm not saying any of that. But what I am saying is that when another person who proclaims to be a Christian, who's put their hope in Jesus, when we see that they are going off track, when they're beginning to lose their way, and there's a possibility of them hurting themselves and hurting others, which is what sin does. It harms. That's why God's against it. When we see that happening, then we are commanded to pursue that person and just offer to help. Just come alongside of them, not, not, not shame them, not force them to do anything, not judge, but just come beside them and offer to give them a hand in walking back to their heavenly father. So that's what I'm talking about. That's restoration. And I'm thankful that God has given us really clear instructions about what this restoration looks like because not a week goes by in my ministry where this topic doesn't come up. So every week I'll get an email or a text or I'll talk to one of you after the services and, and someone will say, Chase, my friend or my husband or my wife or my child or my coworker or my roommate is in a really bad situation. They're walking down the wrong path and I see it and everything in me wants to help get them back on the right path. I just am not sure what to do. Or sometimes it's more serious than that and they'll say, it's just come to light that someone I'm really close to has messed things up. An addiction has come out or an infidelity has kind of surfaced, and they've been caught doing something, and they're experiencing the consequences of that sin, and I'm caught up in those consequences as well. I'm suffering because of someone else's sin, of, because of what this person did. How should I react? What should I do? And these are really confusing situations. They're messy, and, and it's hard to make sense out of it. You know, that's what sin does. Sin complicates things. Mike Lee says that all the time. Sin has a way of knotting things up and confusing things and really just making a mess of things. And because of that, many of the common sayings that we have as Christians, that we have on our coffee mugs or on our bumper stickers, they're, they're just too simple to really guide us in situations like this. We need the detailed instructions that we find in the book of Galatians. Like, we've all heard it said that as Christians, we're supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin. Have you heard that? Raise your hand if you heard that. I've found that's a pretty good guide. That's a pretty true saying, unless I'm relationally connected to that person. As long as that sin hasn't touched my life. But when it's someone that you're close to, when it's, when it's something that affects your life, that saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, it really isn't enough. And so in my experience, if we approach these restorative conversations or these situations uh, too simplistically or without enough thought, or just impulsively, usually it doesn't go so well. Like when this sort of thing happens, when someone close to us is caught in sin, we know that we should do something. Like we wanna take an action. We wanna have a come to Jesus moment. That's our responsibility, we feel like. But we're so bad at these things, aren't we? Our, our, what we usually do is we turn back to the concordance and we look up the sin that they're caught in and we get a three or four good verses that clearly point that out, and then we just awkwardly try to squeeze it into a conversation. Like, like your friend at work was caught lying or something. So you walk in one day and she says, man, for me it's really hot out there. And you're like, sure is, sure is hot. You know what else is hot? Hell. And that's where liars go. <laughs> Revelation 21.8, just wanna bring that to your attention, Karen. Yeah, right? Now hopefully you don't do that. But we try to have these conversations and we find out they're usually really awkward and they're tricky and there's a lot more emotions than we first thought involved. They're, they're really complex. 
And so a lot of times we walk into these emotionally charged environments and we try to quote the Bible. We say, you need to change. You know better than this. And it doesn't end well. The person either gets really defensive and it puts an even bigger strain on your relationship or they act like they're sorry. They say they want to change, but nothing happens. No change takes place. And that's what we want. We want them to be restored. We want them to get back on the right path, the life that God has for them. But all too often, this isn't actually the outcome of our attempts to restore that person. So I know most of us feel very ill-equipped to have a healthy conversation with the person that will lead to lasting change. So that's what I wanna talk about this weekend. How do you love someone, really love someone, and address their sin in such a way that their life changes. And let me just say right off the bat that, this, that the one person that has taught me more about what restoration looks like and what it means than anyone else in my life has been Mike Lee, the founding pastor of this church. And you need to hear that. I've heard him preach sermons off, uh, about this, but more importantly, I've seen him live this out in his life. And there have been dozens of occasions where I've seen Galatians 6 just come to life. So you need to know you have a pastor that loves people. Be thankful for that and who is supernaturally gifted in restoring people. And so most of what you're gonna hear in the next few minutes is straight out of his life and just the stuff that I've learned from him. So I wanna give credit where credit's due. But Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter six. So let's just read the first two verses, then we'll take it apart slowly. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's it. Just three simple but profound sentences. So let's dig in here. That first phrase, brothers, sisters is implied, okay, so women, you're not off the hook. But it's brothers and sisters. If anyone is caught in any transgression. Now that word caught there, it doesn't mean like you caught them in the act of. It doesn't mean caught red-handed, like you walked in the room and like your daughter's eating chocolates that she's not supposed to be. That's not what it means there. If you look this word up in any commentary, you'd actually find that it means someone who's entangled or ensnared. You ever in the kitchen and you make a, a, a turn real quick and your belt loop or your pocket catches on the counter? So random, but it happens to me like three times this week. That's what, that's what it's talking about, okay? Caught, caught up in or ensnared. And that's actually how sin's described a lot in the Bible. So sin is never described as this neutral thing, as this one-time act that we can easily walk away from. Instead, it's always described as a pit that we fall into or as a trap or a snare that we get caught up in. So Paul says, whenever a Christian that we know is caught up in or tangled up in sin, then we have a really clear directive and duty. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him. And some of you are like, sweet, I'm off the hook. I just started following Jesus last week. I am in no way spiritual. I'll leave this up to the pastors. Or I know this is Hope Community Church. So some of you are like, I've been following Jesus for 30 years and I'm still not spiritual. So I'm off the hook as well. But that's, that's actually the most common pushback I get when I tell people that they should do this is, who am I to confront them? I'm not a saint. I'm not perfect. Who am I to point out this person's sin? But you have to see this term spiritual, it doesn't mean spiritual elite. Paul is talking about any believer who's just committed to living the Christian life. 
He's talking about just the average Christ follower who's just trying to get it right. It really means anyone who has the Spirit, who has the Holy Spirit living in you, and that's every single Christ follower in this room right now. And so he says, when, when we find that someone is caught in sin, if you have the Spirit, if you're a believer, then you need to go to that person and you need to restore that person. And listen, that's the first note. That's the goal. Restoration is the goal. Shaming is not the goal. Winning an argument is not the goal. Making them feel guilty is not the goal. Making your life easier is not the goal. Restoration, that's the goal. Paul says, you who are spiritual, you make it the goal to restore that person. And I'm emphasizing this because our natural inclination is to do one of three things. And Mike said this before. It's to either ignore them or to judge them or to punish them. I can promise you this. If you're in a relationship with someone and they've made a decision that's hurt you, they've chosen a lifestyle that's affected you, I promise that you had an emotion that made you either want to walk away and ignore them or stand back and judge them or get involved and punish them. And it really depends on your personality type or how close you are to that person. But our natural inclination is to say, this is not my place to intervene. I'm just gonna pray for them and call it a day. I'm in no place to speak up and we'll kind of turn a blind eye to it and just ignore them. Or we'll say, I thought they were a Christian. I guess I was wrong. How could they do that? Right? And we'll, we'll posture and lift ourselves up and make ourselves feel better and holier than they are. Or we'll swoop in to punish them or to shame them, or to make sure they feel bad enough for what they've done, especially if we're close to that person. But God says, don't do any of that. Your job is to restore. And see, God knows this about us, so he adds that little word at the end there, gently. He says, do this in a spirit of gentleness. And he adds that because especially if we're really close to that person, our instinct is to act like the opposite of gently, just to lash out, to let them have it. Paul's saying, listen, when these sort of situations come up, they are extremely emotional, and you need to know that. You feel all kinds of emotions. They feel all kinds of emotions. These aren't emotionally neutral situations. If you're a parent, you understand this. And one of the strongest emotions that you feel during these types of situations is the exact opposite of gentleness. What is it? Anger, right? It's anger. You get angry because they're not doing what you think they should do. They're not acting the way that you raised them to act. They're not doing what you would do in that situation. They're not acting right, and it ticks you off. And it might start off as sadness. It might start off as confusion or shock or disappointment, but it always has this way of slowly growing into anger. When I counsel people in these sorts of situations, and after a good 30 minutes or 45 minutes, most of the time, they kind of take a step back. They're like, I had no idea I was so angry at them, but I am. You ever walk into a conversation and you're just level-headed and then halfway through, your face starts to get red and your hands start to shake a little bit? All these emotions start coming up in your heart. These are emotionally charged environments. And Paul, Paul knows this. He actually unpacks this in the next sentence where he says, keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. And at first glance, you're like, why do I need to watch myself? Like, it's me, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming after this dude. He's the one that needs to watch out. But, but Paul's pointing to these emotions here. 
Growing up, I thought it meant that I need to watch out lest I fall into the same temptation that they are. But here's what he's actually saying. Listen, this is very important. The word watch means to examine. It means careful investigation. And once again, Paul's turning the focus on us. Have you noticed that? The bulk of this passage is all about us, about the preparation involved before you even go to the person caught in sin. But Paul says before you go to that person, you have to examine yourself. You have to get a clear look at all these emotions that are rising up in your heart. And it's so weird, but it's true, that in the very act of going to help someone caught in sin, those are sometimes the easiest times to get caught in sin ourselves. And we know this because all of us have gone into uh, conversations with good motives and good intentions. And about the three minute and 50 second mark, we've just ruined everything, right? Husbands, you're having some flashbacks, right? I get that, I've, I've been there. These conversations go south because we haven't taken the time to examine or to deal with the emotions that are rising up before we start these conversations. Let me, let me show you something. Right above this in Galatians 5, 20 and 21, Paul talks about the fruits of the spirit versus the works of the flesh. If you're new to church, that sounds really weird, I know. But he's just talking about sinful actions and emotions and he's comparing them to holy actions and emotions. And then the works of the sinful or the fleshless, he has some things we would expect, like sexual morality and drunkenness. But then he says some things like this. He says strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, envy, Paul says these are sins that we need to stay away from. And what Paul's pointing out here is that these are the exact type of sins that are so easy to fall into when we begin these sorts of conversations. I mean, think about it. You're hurt or affected by a person's sin and you enter into a conversation. It's these things that begin to rise up. Anger. Now, does anyone want to change their behavior or their, modif or their, their actions when someone's yelling at them with a red face? No. That doesn't help the restoration process. Pride is a big one that comes up, right? Look at me, I'm on the right track. I'm going to restore them. I'm pretty holy, I'm a pretty good person. It's easy to fall into pride during these conversations and to speak to that person pridefully, looking down on them. And you're not gonna restore this person when you enter into that conversation right off the bat, posturing yourself above them, are you? Or even just thinking about having these sorts of conversations can bring up fear. What if they hate me after I bring this up? What if I make it worse? What if they won't listen? That's a sin that the Bible calls fear of man, where we don't obey something that God's commanded because we're afraid of how someone else will react. What about insecurity? That's a huge one. What will people think when they find out it's my husband or my wife or my child that did that? And so Paul says that you need to restore this person, but in order to do that, you have to take a step back, you have to put on the emotional brakes, and you have to do a long heart check. You have to examine yourself first. You need to deal with the emotions that you're feeling so you don't bring those emotions into that conversation. And I tell people this all the time, anger is never an appropriate response to act on in these sorts of situations. Sorrow is, right, sadness is, but Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. It's okay to feel that anger, but not to act on it. And if you don't watch yourself, 
You're gonna be consumed by these emotions and you won't make any progress during that conversation and you won't take steps towards restoration. And if you don't restore, you fail because that's the goal. So you have to take all of that stuff that you're feeling and you have to take it to Jesus first and you have to pray through that. Say, Jesus, give me appropriate emotions in this moment. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew that spirit inside me and then you can actually go to that person and begin restoring. So that's the first part of restoration and it's all on you, the one doing the restoring. This is all your responsibility. So after that's been done, then and only then do you actually pull that person aside and begin the process of restoration. But I guarantee you, even that act of restoration is different than many of you think it is. Paul moves into the how of restoration in verse two, where he says, carry each other's burdens. And you're like, that's not where he says restoration. That's later on in the verse. But you have to see, that's the synonym that he uses for restoration. If you want to restore someone, here's how you do it. You carry that person's burdens. So he doesn't say you have a conversation over coffee. He doesn't say you text them or email them or write them a handwritten letter. That might be part of the process, but the actual work of restoration is in carrying their burdens. Let me tell you what this means, and this is extremely convicting. Paul says, that the way that you restore is by taking on yourself the complications and consequences caused by this person's sin and then slowly walking them back to the Father. That's the only way that you can restore. You actually come up alongside this person, you stand shoulder to shoulder with them, you take some of the weight that they've been shouldering and you begin to bear that weight with them and you take them by the hand and you take slow and steady steps back towards Jesus. To which I respond, no way, Jose, (laughs) right? I got my own problems. I got my own marriage, my own family, my own financial stuff. You're telling me this bozo messes up and complicates my life and I'm supposed to waltz into his situation and say, let me help you? And the Bible says, yeah, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. And if you're a Christ follower, that actually shouldn't shock you. Look at what it says in the rest of verse two. It says, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of who? Of Christ, right? Paul's saying the law of this world says you suffer your own consequences. The law of this world says you made your bed, now go lie in it. The law of this world says it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's every person for itself. That's how our world functions, but that's not the way things work in the kingdom of God. In In the kingdom of God, we're in this together. In God's kingdom, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. And in God's kingdom, we either take steps forward together or not at all. Listen, when you were far from God, when you were living life your own way, when you were caught up in and entangled in sin, how did God treat you? I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't ignore you or judge you. He didn't swoop into your life to punish you. What did he do? He came and got alongside of us in our mess. He left the comforts of heaven and came down into a world where he shouldered all the brokenness that our sin created. He took on human flesh 
He was thirsty, he was hungry, he was sick, he got betrayed. He knew what it meant to feel lonely. He joined us in that mess. And after three years of living under that weight and that, 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 the messiness of that consequence, he said, I'm gonna take on the ultimate burden. I'm gonna take on the weight of the debt that we owed God because of our sin. The Bible says he, he didn't just come down into this sinful, broken world, but he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He took that weight off of our shoulders and he placed it on his own. And instead of allowing God to punish us, to give us all that we deserved, Jesus said, I'll take that punishment for them. I'll pay the debt that they owe. I'll get underneath that burden so that you, Father, can remain just and so that their sins can be forgiven. That's what Christ did for you. When you were caught in sin, Jesus got up underneath those consequences with you and he took upon himself that burden so that he could restore you to his father. And now Jesus says, love each other the same way that I have loved you. That's how you restore. And this is not a pleasant process. It's hard and it's complicated, and it takes time and discomfort to get down in the trenches with another person for however long it takes to walk them back to the path that God has for them, but it's exactly how Jesus treated us. And I've, I've been in that position before, in need of restoration. During the lowest point of my life, the last year of college where I was doing some pretty hard drugs, like not drugs you laugh about, Drugs that I say, you've done that? Yeah, oh, okay. Those sorts of drugs. No money, no friends, and talk about caught. I was just trapped. I didn't know what way was up, what way was down. And there came a point where I just hit rock bottom and I, I called an old mentor just in desperation. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so I just bared all. I bared my soul to this guy. <laughs> this is a 60-year-old roofer who lived in Charlotte. I was up in Virginia. I just said, <sighs> here's all that's going on. And I thought his head was gonna explode on the other end of that phone line. It didn't. You know how he reacted? He didn't say, let me just pray for you and I'll just keep on praying for you, no. He got involved in my life. He didn't shame me, he didn't guilt me. He said, I'm in this with you. And he was for about a year and a half. He'd call late at night to make sure that I was sober, that I wasn't using. He gave me a job so that I could put some money in the bank. He'd have me stay weekends at his house with him and his wife, and he'd talk to me for hour after hour, just kind of peeling back the layers of, of sin and trying to figure out why I was so drawn to drugs in the first place. He stood side by side with me and got involved in my life and walked me down the path back towards Jesus. And it cost him something. It wasn't easy for him, but he did it. And that's what we're commanded to do. And I, I was just thinking, even today, you know, I had some relatively close Christian friends during that time, and no one said anything. They saw me going down and down and down and down. And I don't remember one conversation where someone pulled me aside and said, Chase, you might want to watch out for this. It's probably not a good path to go down. You know, just as an aside, I think we live in this weird cultural moment where if we see someone caught in homelessness or in poverty, or when we see someone caught in unemployment 
um, or in, in physical sickness. Our hearts are just naturally moved towards that person. Like we see a person who's down and out on their luck, who's caught up in poverty or sickness. There's something in us that wants to rush towards that person and help. We want to get involved. We want to start a meal train. We want to pour into that person. But in a weird way, like I experienced in college, um, all too often when we see someone that's stuck in sin, when we find out that someone's caught up in pornography or legalism or racism or they tend to drink too much way too often or when they're caught up in the love of money, our hearts are not drawn towards them. We almost try to stay away from those situations. Like they'll, they'll figure it out. It's not my place. And we minimize and minimize and minimize their sin. And we rationalize and rationalize why it's not our place to go to that person when all the while the Bible tells us in a thousand different passages and our own experience shows us in a hundred different ways that sin is eternally more dangerous and harmful and damaging than any physical disease or unemployment can ever be. And there's just been a few situations that have happened recently where I've been reminded of what the Bible says over and over and over and over again, that sin destroys lives in a way that nothing else can. And it has this way of just sinking its claws into a person and not letting go. And it's never, it's never um, content with just ruining that one person's life, but it always want to, wants to ruin the wife or the husband or the children. I've seen generations of a family just destroyed by one person's sin. And there have been a few situations that I've been involved in in the past five or ten years of my ministry where I think, I look around, I'm like, all of this could have been avoided if just one person spoke up. In love, not in shame, not in, not in guilt, not in judgment. But if just one person pulled this person aside and said, this is awkward. I, I don't feel like it's my place, but I love you. And I see where you're headed. And I, I just want to know if I could help. Those situations could be completely avoided. I look back over my own life, and there's sadly just months and seasons that are wasted because people stayed out of my business <laughs> and they didn't come and talk to me. What we know from God's word is that there is such a thing as freedom. <laughs> Mike talked about this a few weeks ago. Sin has been fully and finally defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't have to stay trapped. God wants us to be free. That's why Christ came. And what I've found is that occasionally, sometimes someone who's wrapped up in heroin addiction or alcohol addiction or something like that will go to sleep one night and ask God to give them freedom and they'll wake up and they're freed from that addiction forever. I've seen that happen. And when that happens, praise the Lord. But that is not the norm. That is the rarity. Usually, 99% of the situations that I've seen, God uses someone who is courageous enough and who loves enough to pull this person aside, and that's how God grants the freedom that this person needs. Listen, you may be the means by which God grants freedom to that person in your life right now. That's normally how he does it. So we've got to stop running from this stuff and start running to it, because it's that important. And if you really think about it, this is basically all that Jesus did when he spent 
his time here on earth. He taught us some cool truths about, uh, truths about God and then basically just restored people. That's what Jesus did to the Samaritan woman. You remember that story, the woman at the well? She's a Samaritan. He was a Jew, and yet he went and pursued her, which no law-abiding Jew would ever do. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans felt the same, and he knew her life was a mess. She had had five husbands. She was living with the sixth, and Jesus did not walk up to her and say, the law of Moses condemns your lifestyle. No. You know what he did? He walked up and said, can I have a drink? He didn't have a cup. She's like, he's got a drink after me? That'd be like finding a drunk homeless person in a park in Raleigh and sitting down beside him and saying, hey, can I have a swig? And just taking a swig off their bottle. That's what he was doing. That's why she asked, what, you want to drink after me? And Jesus said, yeah, you're caught. And I want you to be free. So I'm going to get right beside you and I'm going to walk with you. And if you know that story, he didn't judge her. He didn't ignore her. He didn't shame her. He restored her. Or one day he was walking through town and he sees this tax collector named Matthew. And tax collector, just think scum of the earth. He was ripping off his own people, the Jews, and giving that money to the Romans, the enemy. And so Jesus walks up to this hated and sinful guy and he says, you're a traitor and a thief. No, he didn't say that. He said, hey, I think you should hang out with me and my disciples. And he joined his life with Matthew for a time. And he didn't care how that would complicate his own life or his own ministry. And he connected Matthew to his heavenly father, and we read his book all the time. It's the first book in the New Testament, right? And that's what we're called to do as well. And know this, you have no control over how the other person will respond. You just need to be faithful in the work of restoration. But what I've found in my experience is that most of the time, more often than not, if you truly go to them with the hopes of restoring and there's no anger and there's no shame and there's no pride, they're gonna realize that. And they'll at least listen because they sense that care and love. But our responsibility is to restore. So in a moment, um, the band's gonna come back up. And we thought it'd be good just to give everyone here just some space to maybe do some business with God. You know, it's, it's very rare that you just get a minute or two to sit in the presence of the Lord and think. And so some of you I know have some work to do this week. Some of you need to go and spend some time in prayer, examine some of the emotions that are in your heart, ask the Lord to remove some of those unhealthy ones, ask him to give you his heart. And then after this service, you need to go schedule a coffee or schedule a time to sit down and begin the work of restoration with someone in your life. So use this time to pray through that, to ask for God's help and his strength. And some of you, you don't need to be the agent of restoration. You need to be restored to your heavenly father for the first time. And I know there's people here where you just walked in and if you're honest, you'd have to say, I'm caught. I'm stuck. I don't wanna be here, I want freedom. I want to know what it's like to feel loved and forgiven. And what you need to hear tonight is that God does not want to ignore you. He doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want to judge you. He wants to restore you, and he can because of what Jesus Christ did. All that you need has been provided for you in Jesus. He lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you should have died. There is nothing that you need to do. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make amends. God loves you exactly where you're at. 
and he wants to restore you to that relationship. And if you just confess that with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, the best thing in the universe is gonna occur. You'll be restored to relationship with Jesus. And his spirit will live inside of you and you'll be transformed and you'll find what you've been looking for. And if that's you, I would love to walk you through that. So I'm gonna pray and I just encourage you, um, just sit for a moment if you need to. But pray through this. Um, don't leave here without interacting with God in the way that you know you should. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that you love us so much. You give us such clear, detailed instructions and instructions that just stand the test of time <laughs> that are true yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you have not left us in this world as orphans alone, but we have your spirit to kind of guide and direct. And when that gets a little confusing or a little beyond us, you've given us brothers and sisters. So I pray that when, when people courageously and bravely speak words of rebuke or correction in our life, um, I pray that we would just develop a habit of responding gracefully, just with thankfulness they would care enough to speak into our life. That's a gift from you. Father, I pray for the people in this room um, who have been hurt in serious ways by people and the wound's still tender and the anger and the shock is still strong and new. Father, I pray that you would miraculously just work in our hearts. I pray that we would feel towards the person that has sinned against us the same way that you feel towards us. God, create in us a supernatural love for that person in our life. May we see them as you see them. Father, I do pray for those that have never known the love of their heavenly Father. Would they know it? Would they know it right now? So Spirit, do what only you can do. It's in the beautiful name of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen.